Luke chapter 7, verse number 18, the Bible says that the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I asked you during the music time to humbly raise your hand if you have a couple of battles that you're facing right now, things that might be tempting you to doubt, and a lot of us just had to raise our hand up. It doesn't mean we're horrible Christians. It doesn't mean that we, um, you know, are uh, pitiful in our faith. It, it simply means that, um, you know, we're, we're living this life out in the constant war between flesh and the spirit. That's the reality. We're going to graduate from that one day when we receive a glorified body. But until then, we're going to have to deal with the war between the flesh and the spirit. And sometimes that war is manifested when we encounter things on the outside of us that come strongly against what is in, in, on the inside of us. So reality, as we see by our eyes and we hear with our ears and we can sense with our other senses. And sometimes our minds are bombarded with the negative, the evil report, the doubters, the naysayers, the critics, all of that stuff. And listen, even the toughest among us can struggle with this issue of doubt. Now, before you say, not me, Jeff, I'm the bionic Christian, man. I don't struggle like that. I want to tell you that the man that we're going to focus on tonight is a guy that you know, he's John the baptizer. He, he was the forerunner of Jesus. And Jesus made this testimony of John in this very chapter. He said, there's never been a prophet greater than John the Baptist. The Son of God said, John the Baptist is the greatest prophet ever born of a woman, greater than Elijah, greater than Isaiah, greater than Elisha, greater than Jeremiah and Amos and Habakkuk and all. Nobody can match uh, John the Baptist, not even Moses the prophet. So we take Jesus at his word that John the Baptist was, a man, was the man. I mean, he was a spiritual stud. And yet when we come to this passage in this chapter in his life, John is revealed in the absolute weakness of his wavering faith. Now I'm going to give you some background before the passage we read because we picked up in the middle of a narrative. Jesus had just raised a young man from the dead in the middle of the guy's funeral. I mean, Jesus sometimes had a flair for the astounding. Jesus literally is walking through a city called Nain. There is a grieving widow woman. She had already buried her husband, and now her only son was dead and in the coffin. 
And Jesus is passing through the city as he's been on this amazing ministry tour where he is healing the blind and casting out demons and raising up the the, the sick and, and opening ears and making the mute to speak and just doing all these miracles, mind-blowing stuff, and he comes through this town of name, and they're literally having the funeral procession, and he walks right up to the casket, and he touches the casket, and everybody freezes. And Jesus says to the man in the coffin, young man, wake up, and he did. He wakes up, the Bible says he woke up in the casket, in the beer, and sat up and began talking. Now, come on, that's some stuff I'd like to see. I I want to have that kind of uh, opportunity to see the Lord do things like that. And when that was happening, that's where we picked up our text. So let's start right there. That's the context. And this is a time that I want you to know that you may be tempted to actually doubt. When is that time? When we see God blessing other people. Now watch this. This is from the viewpoint of John the Baptist, and this is what the Bible says. Others were beholding power. Right there in the beginning of verse number 16, the Bible says, fear seized them all and they glorified God. In other words, it's not this fear of, oh no, we got to get out of here. It's this astounded fear of the people that had just watched Jesus raise this guy from the dead and they were stunned. Their minds were blown and the Bible says that they were glorifying God. They recognized that this was a season in which Yahweh, the God of the Jews, was moving in a way that they had never seen in all their life. And it was being evidenced by all the stuff that Jesus was doing. Just tonight, read Luke chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7, and you'll get a good idea about what all was going on. It was astounding and amazing. And and the Bible says they began to celebrate. They were glorifying God as they were beholding his power. But also, because they were beholding his power, these other people were experiencing hope. Look again in verse 16. This is what they were saying. A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. So in that short testimony of all these people beholding the miracles, they mentioned two things. They mentioned the power of God, and they mentioned the presence of God. A great prophet's been sent, and prophets in Israel were all the time working miracles back in the Old Testament. So a true prophet was known by God, not only by what he proclaimed, but it was like Paul said, we didn't come to you in word only, but in demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. And so they were noting very clearly, although they didn't recognize Jesus as the Son of God yet, They did know this, the power of God is now among us, and also the presence of God. How do I know that? They said, he's visited his people. Our God has not been deaf to our cries. Our God has not forgotten about us. Remember, it had been about four centuries since God had really been moving in the life of Israel. Four centuries of silence. Four centuries of no miracles. Four centuries of barrenness and a wasteland spiritually. Then John the Baptist burst on the scene, and now Jesus is on the scene. And so there's this climate of God moving. Now, I'm going to come back to this issue of doubt in a minute, but I'm giving you the, the context of what John the Baptist was having to deal with. Others were also, verse 17, growing in their expectation. The report about Jesus spread throughout all of Judea and the surrounding area, the surrounding country. What does all that mean? It just means this. You you know the snowball effect? You know how a little snowball starts small, it rolls down the hill, and what happens to it? 
it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. We've all seen the cartoons where it ends up, you know, smashing a house or something like that at the bottom of the hill. But that's the point. What Jesus began in the wedding at Cana of Galilee, where he turned the water into wine, that was the first of his public miracles. Now miracles were going everywhere. And so people, they, they didn't have Twitter, they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have social media, but the word of what was going on was beginning to pass. Now, why is that important? Because there's a guy sitting in prison and this guy's name is John, and John, just probably less than a year earlier, was the prophet in Israel. John, who was Jesus' relative, just a short bit of time older than Jesus, had gotten direct revelation from God about who the Messiah would be. Remember, it was uh, John in uh, chapter number one of the Gospel of John that, that when he saw Jesus and he saw the dove light upon Jesus at his baptism and he had given the testimony, speaking of Jesus, said very boldly, Behold, here is the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sins of all the world. This is the one who is greater than me. I'm not worthy to buckle his shoes. I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so John's testimony of Jesus of Nazareth was here is the Messiah, here is the Lamb of God, here is the one of whom it was prophesied. And so John's faith, months, probably less than a year earlier, his faith was at a fever pitch. He preached to thousands of people. They were coming out into the countryside to hear John preach. And so his ministry had a massive touch of God. All the momentum was at John's back and the wind moving him forward. And yet he, he easily said when he recognized Jesus, he said, he's got to increase and I need to decrease. Those words are easy to say and hard to live. Because John said it, I believe he meant it. I've got to decrease. He, Jesus, must increase. And immediately John's decrease came. What happened? John was a bold preacher. And one day John started preaching against the government. Herod in particular. Preachers and politicians, bad mixture. And so John preached, he got up in Herod's grill and he said, hey, you're married to a woman that your brother used to be married to. You left your wife so you can marry her. That's an abomination in the sight of God. You're both living in sin. Uh, he preached that message to the man with all the power and the man with all the power said, oh really? Okay, I'm gonna tell you where you're gonna find your pulpit from now on, it's gonna be in the dungeon. And he locked him up and put him in a dungeon. And John had been languishing there in the dungeon. And so while all of the revival's going on outside of the prison, and John, if anybody, humanly thinking, if anybody should have been rescued by Jesus, it was the forerunner. It was the anointed prophet. It was the guy who had been serving, the guy who had been denying himself, the guy who pointed everybody to Jesus and faded himself back into the shadows. John was doing everything right. And yet John was in prison, and all these people that didn't have a clue were out there getting their eyes opened and their ears opened and their tongues loosed and their legs healed and their demons cast out. And John's hearing about this. He said, Jeff, why is this important? That is fertile soil for doubt. What are you talking about, Jeff? Hey, Lord, haven't I been serving you? Haven't I been faithful? Lord, did, didn't you not see me sacrificing and giving and serving and loving and witnessing and sharing and denying myself and carrying my cross and, and doing the things that you call your children to do? 
God, I've honored you. I've, I've sung my praises to you. I've offered my prayers to you. I've, I've helped the poor and the sick and the afflicted, and I've kept myself pure, and I've kept my heart humble before you. And, and Lord, I've lived for you. And Lord, I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm locked up in a circumstance I can't do anything about. Lord, I can't get out from behind these bars. Lord, I can't get free. Lord, I can't breathe. I can't move. I can't serve. Everything's a locked iron gate to me, Lord. That's John's reality. And on the outside of it, everybody else was getting blessed. Now, I'd like to say that we're above that. Maybe you are. I hope that you are. But if you're not, I'm just going to encourage you by what you see here, as well as instruct all of us. John the Baptist went through a season where he wavered, where he wavered. Remember, Jesus said he was the greatest prophet that was ever born of men, and yet we're about to see him, the greatest prophet, who had done great service unto the Lord, who's suffering now in the midst of being faithful, and Jesus, watch this, doesn't rescue him. Jesus doesn't make it all better. Jesus didn't remove the problem. Jesus did not say, John, I'm going to fulfill the prosperity gospel message on your soul and abracadabra, be set free. He didn't do any of that. And because in part, I believe of that, and we don't know how long John was locked up, but he had been there a minute, we see that John began to doubt. Now, I am not encouraging us to doubt. But what I am seeking to do is remove that second symptom of doubt, the one that really wrecks us, which is guilt for doubting. If you've ever been in a season of doubt, and you know you're not supposed to doubt, and you're looking around and everybody else is getting blessed, and everybody else has got their hands lifted, and everybody else is talking about how God's moving, and everybody else is talking about their breakthrough, and everybody else is singing at the top of their lungs, and they're on key, and they're harmonizing with the people next to them, and you're over there feeling like you're behind bars. I'm going to tell you, even the best among us can say, now, wait a minute, something's not right here. Well, let's go into verses 18 through 20, and we'll see what that might look like. When we see God blessing others, we can experience that sinking feeling of doubt, but also we can actually cause it to go deeper. When we recognize doubt rising in ourselves, let's, let's just kind of follow this. This is a teaching moment here. This might help me and you diagnose this process and how it might work in us and as it works against us. Sometimes it takes this little, this little route that we're about to go on. First of all, doubt can begin with what we're hearing. Look in verse number 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. Now, they're being bearers of good news. They're telling him, man, people are getting healed. Man, I'm telling you, Jesus is casting out Satan and demons. Uh, people are being raised from the dead. Jesus, we just passed through Nain. We weren't there to see it, but everybody is in an uproar and a stir right now, because, uh, John, because Jesus uh, touched the, a funeral casket, and dude got up and started talking and went back home with his mama. And so John's hearing all of this, and I'm sure these guys weren't coming in saying, John, I'm sorry to say this. They're probably really stoked. They're really encouraged. They're amazed. But John's hearing it through a different ear. Again, let's get raw. Let's just let the rawness be raw here. Let's get real with it. 
I'm just going to ask you some questions. Don't answer out loud. But when you're struggling, when you're not walking in the flow, when you're not living with the glow, when you're not feeling it, when, when maybe you're not sensing the presence of God at all, when you've been doing everything that you used to do and God used to bless it, but now you're still doing what's expected of you, but the blessing doesn't seem to be there, and then you get word, maybe it happens on a Sunday, you walk in and you're just barely making it. And you, you meet somebody in the lobby, they're like, ain't God good? And you're like, oh, yes, yes he is. And your heart's saying, you don't believe that. You don't believe that. You're struggling. You're not happy. But of course, in church, we fake it, right? And isn't that what we're supposed to do, right? I told you I was going to get real with you, and you're going to have to get real back with me, okay? I'm just telling you like it is. And so you come in here, and the songs, and you got people lifting their hands, and they're singing a little holy dance up front and all of that. And you're just sitting there thinking, that's probably not real. That ain't real. Bunch of fakers, bunch of entertainers, bunch of emotional crazy people. And, and it, you, there's a detachment. You just, because it's not happening for you, you don't want to believe that it can be happening for them because if it's happening for them but not happening for you, you might start thinking there must be something wrong with me. So it's easier to just say it's probably fake, probably just a bunch of emotional fanatics and all of that stuff. And, and so your senses, instead of being avenues through which God's glory comes into your heart, Instead of what you're seeing and hearing and experiencing being something that kind of lifts you up towards God, you're, you're reading it the wrong way. You, you know, most of the time when you're discouraged, watch this, most of the time when you're discouraged, you usually have the facts right, but you've got your perspective wrong. That's what discouragement is. Most of the time when I get discouraged, I'm not making up stuff, I'm just misinterpreting it. And so it can happen, and so your senses will betray you. You hear this about how good God is. You see this about what God's doing. Somebody else has just received the blessing that you were praying for, and they received it without praying for it. And they're, they're saying, my testimony is, I wasn't even asking God for this. I can't believe God did this for me. It came out of nowhere. And you're thinking, man, I've been praying and fasting for a year on that thing, and he's still saying no. And so your senses start betraying you. I want to encourage you on something here. Um, I, I, I'll just tell you what we do in our house. We're almost militant about what we, we let affect our senses. We, we fight it. I actually believe that a, probably one of the most common avenues of the enemy to work against us is coming through what goes into our ears and in our eyes. I'm not just talking about movies and music and stuff like that. I'm talking about toxic people that you keep giving parts of your heart to. Friends or associates are just constantly critical negative people that are always downing something and you just, you just keep taking the hits and taking the hits and taking the hits and you think you're making it but what you're not realizing is, wow, I keep getting really dented spiritually every time I'm around this person. And so, yeah, you're still walking, but you're walking with all these dents in it because your senses are soaking in all of this junk. Now, John was actually receiving good news, but we're about to find out that because his situation was so bad, the good news about what was happening out there felt like bad news because it wasn't happening in here. And one of the things, one of the challenges for us, friends, is this. When you don't sense God working for you or in you, discipline yourself to put your spiritual radar out when he's not working for you or you don't sense it or he's not working in you, Get sobered up spiritually and say, well, if he's not working for me or in me, it, where is he working around me? At least let me take joy that I can see him working in somebody else's life. That's the antidote to envy. 
That's how you kill jealousy in your life. Lord, this may not be my season to reap, but Lord, I'm going to rejoice that that lady's harvest has really come in. That, that this guy's finally, Lord, has found his breakthrough. Lord, I, I might be struggling in my home or my marriage right now, and God, we're, we're just going to keep pressing in, remembering our vows and, and, and coming before you. And Lord, I, we want our breakthrough too, but God, while it's not happening for us, I sure am happy that it's happening for this couple. And so what you do is, is you, have to, you have to own your senses instead of letting your senses own you. Because how many of you know that your senses will absolutely lie to you? Have you ever just felt rotten and you have no reason to feel rotten, but you just feel rotten? And before an hour, you let that thing go unchecked, you will convince yourself, you will preach the worst sermon to yourself over and over again until, I mean, you just woke up feeling bad. It could have been the tacos you ate last night. It could have just been hormonal. It could have been a, a lot of things. But before you know it, the sky is falling and everybody's your enemy. And you just created that reality because you didn't take ownership over your thoughts. John was getting bombarded with his senses. Now look in verse number 19. Once doubt begins with what we're hearing or perceiving, doubt is expressed from us in what we're saying. Look at what happens. So John calls two of his students to him, and he sends them to Jesus, and he says, this is what I want you to ask Jesus. Are you the one who is to come, or do we need to be looking for somebody else? That is the spirit behind that question. You, you can hear the despair or maybe the frustration and at the very least the doubt. Now remember, John chapter 1, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom it was prophesied. This is the Messiah. John testifies, he said, I saw the Spirit of God come down on this one like a dove at his baptism and it abided upon him. And so John, in John, John the Baptist in John's gospel, chapter number one, is convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lamb of God. But here he is, and his circumstances have dramatically changed. The blessing outwardly is gone. His freedom has been taken away. I'm not making light of John the Baptist's situation. It was horrible. But look at what happened. It was no longer outside of him. It had now gotten in him. And once it was in him, it started to come out of him by way of expression. He says to his disciples, hey, guys, I can't get out of here. You're going to have to do my dirty work for me. Let me tell you what I'm struggling with. I'm struggling. Is, is Jesus actually the Messiah? Because this doesn't feel like I'm being taken care of by the Messiah. Remember, John had said that Jesus was going to come and burn with unquenchable fire and separate the chaff and the wheat, and he, he, had, he had expected the Messiah to come and topple corruption and topple Rome, and none of that was happening. And, and so John says to his disciples, here's my doubt, and he actually gives life to it. He, he fertilized his doubt, and he planted it in his other disciples. Look down with me in verse number uh, 20. Doubt is multiplied when we plant it in others. So the disciples come to Jesus, and they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now John's message of doubt has become his disciples' message of doubt. Now I'm going to pause here for a moment. I've got a statement I'll give you in just a moment, but let me give you some, just some, some, some fodder here, something to think about. All of us are going to doubt it doesn't make you a horrible Christian. It actually, I think, can be an indication that you're a thinking Christian. Because the deeper you go with the Lord, he's going to take you in some turns in a labyrinth of life, and you're not going to know your way all the time. 
Jesus does promise that he'll lead you, but he does not promise that you'll have a GPS. He promises that you will keep your eyes on him and he will turn and then you turn and he will stop and you stop and he will go and you go. But he doesn't give you a layout of exactly how many miles are going to be calculated between point A and point B. He just says, keep your eyes on me and follow me. And so when I doubt, and I, I, I promise you, I had to repent of this a few years ago. Um, it, it, was, it was just a lot of struggle in my life in ministry. And we'd get in our staff meetings. Nobody wanted to come to staff meetings. Carla, you've been in a couple of those staff meetings. And I'd get in there, and basically it was just a, a vomit of doubt. Forgive the analogy there, but it was just, aren't you glad you showed up for two hours? You know, that, that's the way staff meeting went, because we were struggling with this. We had pers personality problems over here. We had this issue over here and this issue over here. And, and there was very little good news. And so all of us, surprisingly, suddenly had things to do on Tuesday mornings at 9 o'clock. So I can't meet staff meeting, I can't make staff meeting, I can't make staff meeting. Why? Because I didn't know how to process things I was doubting about. And what happened is I planted it in other people. Friends, our kids pick up on this. Our grandkids pick up on this. Our fellow, uh, other, our spouses can pick up on this. It, it happens in churches all the time. I mean, sure, it's happened here, but it happens in all churches. Somebody gets upset, somebody's struggling, somebody's negative, somebody gets doubting, somebody gets unhappy, and, and what they do is they just pass it on. It's amazing to me how praise seems to be less contagious than complaining or doubt. It's just, it's like weeds in our yard. I mean, how many of you have ever gone out and, and planted your weeds? Do you, do you water your weeds hoping they'll grow? No, they do all of that on their own. And that's the way it is with doubt and complaining and negativity. It just seems to spread naturally. We actually have to fight against it. Just like in, you know, landscaping, you actually have to give special attention to those things that are noxious and spreading and don't belong there. You have to uproot them. You have to round up on them and, and you have to do whatever you can to stop the spreading. John, he wasn't trying to do anything, but by the time he was done, he had taken his internal doubts, he had passed them on to his disciples, and his disciples had expressed them to Jesus. Think about this. Jesus is being critiqued concerning his identity based on what was happening in one man's life. John the Baptist was questioning the trustworthiness of the Son of God simply because of very difficult circumstances. And by the way, I'm going to say it again. He was the greatest prophet that ever lived. So I'm not going to go home beating myself up. I don't want to be a doubter. But if I find myself in a doubting season, John the Baptist could look at me and say, hey, Jeff, I've been there. By the way, so could Jeremiah. So could Elijah. So could Hannah of the Old Testament who'd been praying for a baby for so long and was despairing at the altar of God after year after year, month after month came, and she finds out again she's not pregnant. And so despair and struggle is not off limits for the Christian. And please, if you've ever been um, manipulated by religious leaders who tell you, bless God, if you really trust him, you'll never waver, you'll never doubt. And uh, man, I, I've seen such guilt and shame placed upon people. I, I know of circumstances where a healing didn't come, and the best response that could be given to that person from their spiritual leader was, well, you just didn't have enough faith. Isn't that hideous? It's horrible to take something so complicated and look at somebody and say, yeah, basically your loved one passed away because of your doubts. 
So John wrestled with them. I wrestle with them. You're going to wrestle with them. But it doesn't mean we have to be victimized by them. Why are examples like this in the Bible? So we can look at them and we can be exhorted from these testimonies and we can say, all right, what do I do when I doubt? So the doubt that began, here's a statement, the doubt that began inside of John came forth from John and entered into his own disciples. And here's what I want to tell you. It's hard some of you are, are processors, you, you're communicative, you just got to share. You really need to think long and hard about how and when to share your doubts and in what forum. The psalmist said this more than once, I pour out my complaint before the Lord. I pour out my complaint before the Lord. Sometimes we just need to go straight to him with our doubts because we can think we're sharing we're offloading something that we're struggling with, and we can actually take that offloading, and it turns out to be a deposit in somebody else's heart that wasn't struggling until we spoke up. And so let's be wise. That doesn't mean you can't get counsel and you can't talk to people, but I'm going to encourage you. Um, the old saying, you know, you don't have to hang out all of your dirty laundry. Most people don't want to see it. And sometimes you just have to go to the Lord with it. And sometimes one of the most faith-filled things we can do is we just abide. We wait, we pray, we persevere, we endure. People may say, hey, sister, something wrong, something bothering you. Just be discerning. That may be an opportunity if it's a strong believer asking for you to say, yeah, actually, thank you for asking. I'm struggling with this. But I'm going to encourage you. Don't just randomly spew it just to process it. Let's love each other enough to say, I don't know if, if he or she can handle this, especially around your kids, especially around those that maybe aren't, aren't where you are spiritually. Just be wise with it. So let's go down and let's just see how Jesus handles it. And this is yet another indication where I learned that I am not like Jesus yet. I'm just not. Because, and I don't mean this in any heretical or blasphemous sense, if those disciples had come to me and said, hey, John's wondering if you're the real deal or not, I would have been like, well, who's he to ask? How dare he question my messiahship? I'm the son of God. Tell John, oh, does he not? Uh, you know what we do? We'll send him a tape of his own sermons. <laughs> I've had people send me my own sermons before. It's like, Jeff, I heard what you've been saying, you know, and by the way, you remember when you preached this? And you're like, you snap the CD in half and you throw it away, but... Jesus doesn't do any of that. Matter of fact, Jesus' testimony about John being the great prophet actually follows this. It's Jesus' response to the people, he's going to send a message to John, and we're about to look at it. We don't have time to, to, to go into what Jesus said about John. He sends a message to John, and then he gives a message about John that validates John in the midst of his doubt. Jesus preaches a message about John the Baptist in John the Baptist's weakest moment. That ought to give you hope because the devil will saunter up to you when you're struggling and doubting and you're not, you're just not surfing the wave anymore. You feel like you're drowning under the wave and the devil comes up and says, you're pathetic. You are just pathetic. I mean, you're supposed to be a strong Christian. 
You're supposed to be, you know, the titan of faith. And, uh, and then he tries to invalidate all these moments that you've had in the past that were strong and were faith-filled. He just comes along and he's a liar and he's always going to lie. He's always going to accuse. And I'm going to tell you something, when you hear that accusing voice, discipline your mind to say, that's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will never give you general accusation. He will convict you specifically of a sin, but he will never just say, you sure are rotten. That's always the devil's voice. What does Jesus do? Well, let's see. That sinking feeling can come when we see God blessing others when he's not blessing us. It can come when we recognize doubt rising in our hearts, and the more we talk about it, the worse it gets. And sometimes that sinking feeling is only combated by those moments when all we can do is surrender. I'm going to tell you something. I'm learning this maybe even later than I should have learned it. So much of the Christian life is what we do in worship. People have asked me, Jeff, why do do people always lift their hands in worship? There's a bunch of different reasons, but one of them is it is a posture of surrender. It is saying, Lord, I am yours. You know, know and just in like our culture, when, when a bad guy comes in, or even when the good guys come in and you are a bad guy, you lift your hands up and surrender. It's saying, I don't have anything I'm trying to do. I'm not gonna try to come against you. It is a posture of full surrender. And sometimes that's what we must do when our doubts are coming against us. What does it look like? Look at what the Lord does. Look at what Jesus does. Last couple of points here. When we're surrendered, we need to remember two things, three things really. God's work never stops. That's verse 21. Jesus does not immediately give a verbal answer. Verse 21, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Now, Jesus does not get into a debate. He does not give uh, a dissertation to the disciples of John the Baptist. They asked a question, and the gist of the question is, hey, are you really the Messiah? Or do we need to be looking for somebody else? I wish I had time just to go into that question. But man, basically at the core of it, it's, wow, Jesus, you're not all I thought you'd be. And a lot of Christians go through that. You get saved and he's the greatest and then trials come and troubles hit and life gets harder. Some of you could raise your hand and say, Jeff, I had an easier life before I dedicated myself to Jesus Christ. That's when my trouble started. Yeah, because you defected from the devil's army and joined the army of God and you got a bullseye on you. And so, yeah, it's going to get hard sometimes, but what, what does Jesus do? They asked a verbal question from John the Baptist and Jesus doesn't give immediately a verbal answer. He just gives a demonstration of power. And this is so important for us, friends. Listen to me on this. Some of you have no problem with this. Some of you really are going to have to embrace this over and over again until it becomes a part, a working part of your theology and your relationship with God. There are barriers in our lives and challenges that we face and enemies and hostilities that come against us that all of the verbal Bible studies in the world put together will not solve that particular situation. Sometimes you don't need another Bible verse. You need a demonstration of the power of God. And listen, this is coming from a guy who's dedicated his life to preaching and teaching the Bible. So don't write me anonymous emails saying you're a liberal. I'm not a liberal. I'm telling you the apostle Paul said that we came not only with the word, but with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when this doubt situation was happening with John the Baptist, instead of Jesus just saying to his disciples, 
yeah, go back and tell John that I am the Messiah. Now, run along, fellas. That's not what he did. He, he just said, and he goes over to a deaf man, and he touches his ears, and he backs off, and he says to the deaf man, can you hear me? And the deaf man goes bonkers, because he can hear. He, he goes over to a, a lame child that's never walked, and he kisses the child on the forehead. I'm, I'm embellishing a little, but follow me. And he picks the child up by the hands, and the child stands up for the first time, and the child's limbs straighten out, and the child is dancing and weeping, and his parents immediately embrace him and smother him, and the whole family dynamic has changed. And then over here, you've got a man with dark, hollow eyes and evil, and maybe at times he's seizing, and at other times they may have tried to chain him as they did the Gadarene demon-possessed man, but this man is over here, and he's clearly inhabited by foul spirits. And Jesus says to that man, I command you in the name of the Most High God, come out of this man and set him free. And the man convulses for a moment, maybe he even falls down, but the demons flee, and the man gets up, and he is now in his right mind, and it's the first time. And everybody that ever lived in his village is saying, the power of God has come, the power of God has come, the power of God has come. That's the testimony of Luke. Luke says, after the question was asked by the disciples of John the Baptist, no verbal answer given at that point, but a demonstration of the power of God. We live in a season where not only Christians struggling with doubt, but the world is growing more and more hardened in their, it's not only doubt, it is a refusal of refusing, denying spirit of this age that blasphemes God. And it's the spirit of Nietzsche and, and those that have declared God is dead. And I'm going to tell you what God has reserved for the end of the age. Before every knee bows and every tongue confesses, I want to remind us of something. It's not going to be a long Bible study that God sends. It is going to be an unfettered display of his fury and power against rebellion. And it will come in a way to where they will hide themselves in rocks and wish those mountains would fall in on them because of the wrath of the Lamb. That's what the Word of God says. So when God wants to really establish that he, he is today, who he has always been and who he's always said he's been, there are times where he's not going to speak it, he's going to do it. But hallelujah, I got a little book of Revelation there on you for a moment, but let me get back to the book of Luke, because it's not wrath, it's mercy that he pours out here. And we're living in a day of mercy. What does it look like? Very quickly. God's power never diminishes. You have to remember this in your season of doubt. God's power never diminishes. Now Jesus answers them. Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. John was disturbed by what he had heard. Now he's coming back, Jesus is sending them back and say, I not only want you to tell John what I say, I want you to tell John what you just saw. And here Jesus highlights it. Very quickly, six things. He, excuse me, the Messiah. In fulfillment of messianic prophecy, primarily from the book of Isaiah, Jesus brings light to the darkness. The blind receive their sight. That was a messianic prophecy, prophesied more than one place, that the Messiah would have a ministry that opens the eyes of the blind. Jesus had just done that. He brings power to the disabled. The lame were then walking. Those disciples of John the Baptist had seen Jesus do it. It said in that very hour, he started doing all these things. He also, not only darkness and disability, but he brings healing to the disease. The lepers were cleansed. Friends, there were all sorts of skin conditions in the, in the New Testament time that are classified as leprosy, but it would have been visible to all. 
that, that literally limbs that were either gone or deeply embedded with grotesque sores would have been cleansed like Naaman the leper in the book of the Kings. Lepers were cleansed right there before their eyes. The death here. And so you, you've got the deaf, the diseased, the disabled, those in darkness. You've got the dead. I mean, listen, we read this stuff. We just kind of breeze on through this stuff because we've been hearing Bible stories our whole life. Pretend you don't have a Bible and you were there that day and, and you're just all of a sudden, you're struggling. Is this the Messiah or not? And Jesus is saying, if my words don't convince you, at least consider the works. I raised a dead man in the city of Nain. And then the destitute, and I love this. This is so tender. And Jesus said, the poor have the good news preached to them. In other words, Jesus said, I'm telling everybody who's broken in heart, who's powerless, who's penniless, I'm telling them there's hope. And all of these things that he was doing fulfilled multiple messianic prophecies. So it wasn't just power, it was power that was rooted in the word. And so let's remember this. If we ever are operating and all we need is power, all we need is power, we just wanna see cool stuff, we just wanna see the supernatural, we just wanna enter into something really cool so we're vibing with the supernatural, but it's not rooted in scripture, that's just as stupid as just being Bible, 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 and never just pretending it's no big deal that we don't have any power in our lives. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power, Romans 14. We, we, brothers and sisters, we have word and spirit. And when those two things collide, by the way, those are the two pillars. That's what we're bridging at Newbridge Church. The word and the spirit, where they've been divorced for so long, we're bridging them together again. And we're saying we're just going to be like Jesus was. We're just going to be like the apostles were. We're just going to be like the early church was. We don't have to apologize for it. And that's what's going to make the difference in our community, which is filled with doubters. They've heard all the sermons they need to hear. I'm going to tell you what we're looking for in the Bible Belt, and I'm just going to quit. I'm going to give you one little thing, and I'm going to quit. People have heard sermons ad nauseum. They've heard tons of sermons. I'm going to keep preaching them, by the way. But what they're saying is, we hear you Christians talking but we don't see God in your life. And I'm gonna make a bold statement. They ought to see God in our lives because he is in our lives. Last point, last verse, verse 23. When all we can do is surrender, we need to remember God's word never stops even if it doesn't happen to be showing up at our address in the present moment. When he's not working in you, open your eyes, he's working around you, give him the glory. God's power never diminishes. And God's ways demand complete trust. Here's the only thing he said really pointed in this passage. He said, by the way, when you go back to John, guys, tell him everything you've seen, everything you've heard, and guys, take home this beatitude. Blessed is the one who's not offended in me. What, what is Jesus saying there? Let me unpack it. Jesus is saying, hey, tell John that those people who don't let their doubts and disappointments bring them to ruin, those are the people that are blessed. Blessed are the ones that aren't offended, that they don't fall away 
in the midst of seasons of doubt. And I'm going to tell you something. No matter what you're going through tonight, no matter how close to the edge of just feeling like giving up you have been or might even be tonight, no matter how desperate you are for your answer and fearing is he going to come through or not, the very fact that you're here tonight tells me that you're blessed because you're working through your doubts and you're still seeking him. And don't you think for a second that that doesn't bring great pleasure to the Son of God.